For me, being Sam's twin has, in, in this way, I feel like as twins we're not supposed to talk about this, but for those of us in the room who kind of worship at the altar of Sam, um, for me it's been, it's been imitating Sam whenever I can. Um, now some folks will tell you if you want to be happy, having a plan is the only way. They'll say you gotta get all of your ducks in a row. If you ever want them birds um, to lay? But my whole philosophy of life is well, you're here today and then you're gone. You might as well be making the whole thing up right as you go along. Yeah, I, I've wanted to imitate Sam in all of these ways. But the thing I think is most admirable about Sam is the way he's able to bring people together. And that came up today in the vows. Um, I remember distinctly in May of 20, 2011, um, watching Sam help to bring a community of people together when all anybody wanted to do was fall apart. Uh, and, and I think reflecting on that quality about Sam, I think the same thing happens when he plays his music. And I think that's what's really amazing about Sam's music is that if you've ever seen, I like to, when I see him play, I like to sit up front so that I can turn around and look at all the people and just look at how they're, they're not doing anything except listening to Sam. On the last episode of Someone Else's Blues, I introduced you to my twin brother, Sam. I told you about Bill Cranshaw, Sam's best friend from college, who died tragically while riding his bike across the country with my brother and their friends. I told you about how Bill's mom briefly and accidentally mistook me for my brother at her son's memorial service, and how it forever changed the way I would see my brother and think about our relationship. I also told you about how Sam started writing music to heal from his loss and to remember his friend. I told you about how I hurt my brother without meaning to, and then how I tried to redeem myself at his wedding where he married another identical and I told you how, almost exactly two years after Bill was killed, I started out on a cross-country bike trip of my own. Whenever I hear people say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, I always want to tell them how Webster's Dictionary defines cliché. I don't like to think of myself as a copycat, but I also think that being a twin has turned my entire identity into a gimmick. Just do what Sam does, but don't do it in front of Sam. Do it in front of other people. Do it in front of people who don't know Sam or who don't know you're a twin. When I was in college, I started writing letters in longhand to some of my friends because this was something I noticed Sam doing with his friends and something Sam and I had been doing for quite a while. It was a difficult habit to maintain, and I never felt like I was really saying what I wanted to say, which was maybe that I was pretending to be interested in something that I wasn't, 
or that I was trying to appear like a disciplined and tortured intellectual who was so tormented by the technological innovations of the modern world that he could hardly bear to drive in a car or to own fewer than three manual typewriters. Today, I think of that torment as privilege, and I also usually just call those people hipsters. More times than not, my writing of letters to friends actually got me in a good bit of trouble, and may have even cost me a friend or two. I think in longhand, intimacy is easy to mistake for, well, intimacy, when a brief hello is all that was ever due. My mistake was thinking that I could talk to other people the way I could talk to my brother. There were a number of things I imitated about my brother in high school. Mind you, there were some things I wasn't brave enough to do either. I jumped off a bridge into the Lehigh River one time, but only because I saw Sam do it first. I started swimming in the Monocacy Creek, too, following Sam's example. The Monocacy is a sad, shallow, and probably carcinogenic body of water that runs through downtown Bethlehem. I started running cross-country. Sometimes, instead of going for an eight-mile run, we would just run half a mile down to the Monocacy and jump in. Or have a snowball fight if it was cold out. One time, we jumped into the Monocacy in January, and then spent the afternoon running around like wild people, trying to get ourselves warm until our mom came and picked us up, looking disappointed and embarrassed. I eventually quit cross-country, but only because Sam did first. I started getting interested in poetry and fiction, largely because Sam did. I also remember that I started reading Shakespeare, outside of class, mind you, because my brother took a lead role in the Shakespeare Club. By the way, in September of 2018, I earned my doctorate. My dissertation was called Globalizing Nature on the Shakespearean Stage. So yeah, I kept reading Shakespeare. As a twin, I'm not sure if you're ever really free from the curse of imitation. I like to think I did these things that my brother did, not because my brother did them, but because I wanted to do them, because I was interested in them. But then again, I like riding my bike because I grew up doing that with my brother. I enjoyed running a lot more when I was younger, before I had this sick dad bod. But maybe it's because I was running through a construction site or across a private golf course with my brother, trying to make trouble as quickly as I could avoid it. I like to think I wanted to ride my bike across the country just because I wanted to, but I can't let go of the idea that I needed to do it because Sam did it first. Or tried to. I mean, honestly, it was the kind of thing that was, I don't know, I'll say this. I felt like I did a lot of thinking and planning. But right. then before I knew it, it was the day to leave. And I just kind of threw some stuff together. <laughs> yeah. I well, did yeah, it in I the mean... journal, and I felt bad about that. I think I brought a camera, but I didn't take any pictures with it. Yeah, I mean, did I have my computer? I must have had my computer with me because... No, I don't think so, Will. You, we just had um, we just had Anna Claire's iPod. Or oh, iPad. maybe I gave... Yeah, maybe I gave it to Anna to... Because I knew, I knew that wherever, whenever we got to, uh, to Wisconsin that I was going to go spend the rest of the summer in L.A. I wasn't coming back to Massachusetts, so I guess... I guess that means I gave Anna my computer. 
Because, yeah, I kept a journal, but I did that all, like, with a notebook. The old-fashioned way. Yes. Well, I remember you were always writing in that journal. Like, yeah. whenever we would get to a spot, you'd be working on it. Yeah. I mean, I tried to. Which I appreciate, because that journal is phenomenal to read. <laughs> it's like a really well, detailed record. Might be raining, it might be snowing. That old north wind, she might be blowing through the treetops, down the sidewalks, past the rest stops of this restless world. I did keep a journal of our journey together, but again, I think it was only because I had heard a rumor that my brother had documented his travels first even though I had not read his journal at that point. But while he was on the road, I remember imagining him sleeplessly documenting the lightest breeze, or perhaps the briefest encounter with a stranger, while his companions slept, recharging their batteries. In looking back over my journal documenting the adventure I had during the summer of 2013 with my friend Bob, I think it is clear that I had one central question in mind on our trip. Why are we doing this? On Wednesday, May 15th, 2013, my pal Bob Gruber and I set out on our bikes from our apartment on Cherry Street in Northampton, Massachusetts. On Saturday, June 1st, 2013, we arrived at our destination in Appleton, Wisconsin, the place Bob called home, a distance of more than 1,100 miles. From there, I would fly off to L.A. to live with my girlfriend, Anna, who is now my wife, for the remainder of the summer. And in a few weeks, Bob would fly right back to Western Massachusetts, where he had a summer job waiting for him. So why did we do it? Why do this, knowing what could go wrong? Knowing that almost everything was at stake? If I were not me, and you were not you, did not both know what we've both been through. I guess My name I guess is Will Steffen. Welcome to Someone Else's Blues, a podcast about twins, twinship, and the best singer-songwriter you've never heard Part 2. Death was out riding his horse in the desert. Imitation is one of the answers to the question, why go on a long-distance bike trip? It's a simple answer. A convenient answer. But another answer is that it really gave me a chance to get to know my traveling companion, Bob Gruber. Bob and I had been roommates for about a year when we set off. But I learned things about Bob on the road that I never would have learned simply sharing a bathroom and a kitchen with him. I first met Bob at a UMass graduate student mixer at a bar in Amherst, Massachusetts. The whole point was that you were supposed to meet other graduate students in other programs. It was our first week as grad students, and we were both feeling pretty intimidated. 
but I don't think I have ever made such a good friend so fast. Bob was getting started on his PhD coursework in philosophy, and I was studying English with a concentration on the early modern stage. Um, yeah, I don't remember going anywhere afterwards other than drinking. Well, and I seem to remember that I gave you a ride home. Is that true? I do remember or that. Because you told it, you we found out that you lived like only a couple blocks away from where we lived in Northampton, right? And right across the street from this house where a bunch of your Hampshire friends were yeah, crammed yeah. into. Right. <laughs> I mean, I right. just remember like really enjoying meeting you and talking with you and Ezra. And then I remember when you were dropping me off being like, okay, um, can I have your number? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like a date, wasn't it? It felt that way at that, at that one moment. But I'm glad that we yeah. changed numbers because if we went to, right. like, can you imagine how radically different our lives would be? Well, yeah, I'm sure I would have run into you every now and then somewhere. But, um, but the thing I was trying to remember, I feel like maybe when you told me your name was Bob, I laughed because I just thought that was, I don't know. Do you remember that or no? I, I don't know if I <laughs> recall that, but that was probably something that was within your character to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. On our bike trip, I tried to keep track of all the weird things I was discovering about this person, who I thought I already knew. On the third day of our trip, Bob was asking Jeff, our warm showers host in Schenectady, New York, what it was like to be an engineer. Bob said, engineering, huh? You know, I took a couple of engineering courses in college, and then I thought, this is way too practical for me. I think I'm going to stick with philosophy. At the time, I found this funny because I thought that bicycling across the country was perhaps one of the least practical things I could think of doing. I'm still struggling to articulate just why it is I am out here, I wrote in my journal. Tonight in Illion, New York. I think love has something to do with it, for Bob, for Anna, for my brothers, and even for my parents. But what the hell is practical about love? There is a thing full of design flaws. When Bob and I reached Illion, New York, we stayed with his Aunt Mary Alice and Uncle Bill. Mary Alice used to teach elementary school, and she is the one who told me about something called the Gruber Curse, where members of the Gruber family cannot let something be if it is just a little to the side or a little off the mark. As Bob's dad, David, would later explain it to me, there are two ways to do something. There's the wrong way, and then there's the Gruber way. I guess I haven't noticed this curse being manifested in Bob, I wrote that night in Ilian, but I also didn't know such a curse existed. The next day, outside of a place called Rome, New York, I learned what Mary Alice was talking about. Here's what I wrote the following night. We got two flats today. Well, four. Well, Bob got two, which means that he is averaging, or are we averaging, one a day. The first was on our way into Rome, where all roads lead. A piece of glass had lodged itself in Bob's tire and punctured the tube. Bob's tires, it seems, are a regular vacuum for glass shards. My tires are bald. I'm not sure any of our tires will last the trip. 
Anyway, Bob patched the tube while I removed glass from his tire. Then he pumped it up with his handy hand pump. That's full. That'll do, I told Bob. I don't want it to just do. I want it to be a good tire. He pumped the tire a few more times. That feels pretty rigid, I said. One more ought to do it, he said. And with one more pump, Bob ripped the pump nozzle off and tore the pin clean out of the valve, losing all of the air and rendering the tube useless. So he wasted a patch and used his last spare tube. Where the rooster's in the hen house with his feathers all must The hay barn is burning and the milk's gone sour It's harvesting time but the whole crop's a bust And that's the third thunder strike I've heard in the half past hour Been up for three days in a dripping cold sweat I called for the doctor and they sent me a vet I'm losing my livelihood along with a bet And I ain't even had my coffee yet In Erie, Pennsylvania, I remember admiring Bob for burning a map that our host in Buffalo, New York, had given to us. We stopped at a grocery store for Gatorade and Pop-Tarts, I wrote. We then found the Blasco Memorial Library right on the lakefront in Erie, where we used the facilities, checked Google Maps, and even glanced at what maps were available to us there. We were without a map. Last night, in his effort to start what turned out to be a very comforting fire, Bob burned the map of New York that Cliff had given to us. I admire him greatly for being able to distance himself from what he has only had to pass through to get where he is now, to do away with the tools which have gotten him where he is. Wouldn't these pages do just as well in the fire as they would keeping my ink dry for me? Well, the private detective's wearing his best disguise. He's already taken several incriminating photographs. He's got the evidence to prove what the defendant denies. He caught that fellow with his secretary taking a bath. A lady pulls up in her ex-husband's new Corvette. Just as the private eyes lighten his last cigarette, she says, are you ready, man? He says, we're all set. And I ain't even had my coffee yet. One of my favorite versions of Bob came out on day 12. We were in Fremont, Indiana. It was Sunday, May 26th, 2013, the day before Memorial Day. We were trying to secure a campground when everybody and their mother was out camping. As we hunted for a place to spend the night, a version of Bob reared its head, which I'm not sure I have ever seen before or since. It was Bob frustrated, Bob interrupted. But it was also charming because of how agreeable he is, even when miffed. Camp Pokagon was full, I wrote. We biked six or seven miles out of Angola to a campsite that was full. The woman at the office gave us some alternatives. We each called a few. Bob told a woman at a site eight or nine miles back in Angola that we would be there by 8 p.m. Bob also wanted to go camp on the Sly in a state park. I wanted to rest, but I did not want to backtrack either. I called a few places, too, and found one a few more miles down the road. After beer and pizza, I certainly didn't want to do any more biking, but the farther we went tonight, the less we would have to travel tomorrow. And I have a century planned for tomorrow. Eventually, Bob agreed to accompany me to a Jellystone resort three or four miles down the road. It took a lot of convincing, though. Bob is quite principled when it comes to camping. My dad always says never camp for more than $30, and don't ever go to one of those Jellystone places. How much is it, anyway? Bob asked. 
A woman on the phone had told me $49 for the night. 50 No. No way. That's like a new video game, Bob said. That's Roller Coaster Tycoon Deluxe 3D. 50 bucks? That's like a leather-bound copy of The Tempest with annotations from William Shakespeare himself. As we biked to Jellystone, we kept our eyes open for a good free spot, but none presented itself. We even glanced longingly at a roof of a mini-mall, which was an idea I had proposed only half in jest. I know that Bob prefers to do what is legal over what is free, but he did seem broken-hearted about promising that woman at another campsite back in Angola that he and I were on our way to her. He called her back when we got to Jellystone. From the tone of his voice, I gathered that they would only ever be just friends. But even that did not seem likely anymore. Bob is making a fire now. He could have flirted with the girl at the registration counter a bit more, who seemed to swoon when he told her how far we had come. But he was too upset to notice, I think. Maybe it was how much we were paying. Maybe it was the phone call. He barely noticed that she gave us a 10% discount for just traveling through. I am skeptical about whether such a discount actually exists. I don't care what the park is called, Bob pouted, as we selected our campsite from the few left at the far end of the property, beyond the sea of Winnebago's and family campers, near the chain-link fence that was only a few feet from the highway. I'm calling it Jellyville. It's camping for the week. I mean, I, mean I, I think you know this about me, that I'm kind of an optimist, and I generally forget about the, the elements of something that involves fear. Uh-huh. I mean, I will say that day, the Subway sandwich bags on the feet day. Uh-huh. That was not a good day to be biking on the roads. It was the day after Memorial Day. Right. There and, was a lot of traffic for that reason. And the highway we And the kind of traffic not. was like the shittiest kind of traffic. We're talking people that have big rigs. You know, they're motorhomes right. or big trailers. Right. All pissed off because Memorial Day has been cut short. They're like driving like maniacs down this road, and it's straight. Right, straight and road. No shoulder. No shoulder. Yeah. And we're stuck behind this. I don't know how those Amish folks deal with this. I mean, well, like right. That was the other kicked yeah. up into our faces. Yeah, that's the thing I remember. There was like a lot of horse and buggies on that road. Because so what? We were in Ohio. Is that right? Uh, I've got a map here I could look at. Or, I think it could have been Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. I think it was Indiana. Let me pull up my map. Because my mom made that map after we finished our trip. Or, <laughs> yeah. or she was making a map because she's an elementary school teacher and was making this map with right. live updates for her students. Right. And then so, when we got there, we were like superstars to them. They were like... yeah. They asked us all those silly questions. That was so cool that your mom, like, organized that for us. And I would never think to do that, even if I was a kindergarten teacher. She's an educator at heart, I guess. Um, Okay, according (laughs) to my map here, on that day, we were at the very, like, northernmost part of Indiana. Right, okay. And right, because we got into Michigan that, the next day. No, it was one in the same day. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And if right, I could right. just zoom in on this photo, we were yeah, basically at the later. northern border of Indiana, and basically the roads are just like east-west straight right. roads. Right. And I guess I would say that I was pretty scared on that day as far as, like, the traffic conditions are concerned. Mm-hmm. We managed right. to be in bike paths for a lot of the trip. We took the Erie Canal Trail. Yeah, that was, like, that was on riding through trail. New York. It's so nice to know that you can actually bike through New York, like, mostly on a on either a bike path or a bike a bike designated road. I mean, yeah, that path that follows the Erie Canal is really amazing. Um, we were on some bad roads on the last day of the trip. In Wisconsin? After leaving, after leaving Milwaukee. Oh, yeah. That's true. I feel like we were on, like, highways at some at points. But I also yeah. remember a lot of farm country. Like, there wasn't that much traffic on some of those. But the, like, roads were, like, real long and windy. There wasn't a shoulder, but maybe there wasn't a lot of traffic. And it was just, like, fields. Yeah. For parts of it, anyway. Yeah, I never really worried for my safety other than, like, when I was maybe on some of those bad roads. Or yeah. or that night I described with a tree. I, I really was afraid that, like, it was so windy. I thought, it's right. one of these trees going to fall over on me, and will I die? <laughs> right. Because, yeah, our campground, yeah, we were, like, basically between three very tall trees. Yeah where we set up our tent. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know if you knew how kind of anxious I was for a lot of that trip about, like, stuff that could go wrong. But I feel like it was on my mind quite a bit. I don't even know if you told me about Bill. I think I did, because... Because I remember when you first told me that you were thinking of biking home to Wisconsin, um, you were you were talking with who, who was that friend of yours in the philosophy department who who like went back to Alaska after he got his degree and like now he's a fisherman. Oh. <laughs> he's a he's a PhD in philosophy and he he's a fisherman. Yes, Doctor Casey Wait, Knight. Casey, yeah, yeah. Because he was always into, like, doing really active stuff. He always wanted to, like, go on a run or, like, go on a bike, biking. And I remember you talking to him about about it. And then I feel like I just kind of invited myself on your – because you kind of made it clear that, like, you were biking home whether whether you had a companion or not. <laughs> I was determined to do it. I bought a bike that was right. made for bike touring. Yeah. And I would just have decided as like part of my identity, because I was sort of remaking myself as a grad student. I was like, I'm going to become a cyclist. And right. I'm going to bike to Wisconsin. Right. But how relieved I was, Will, that you wanted to go with me. I didn't want to do it alone. When we finished the trip, I spent a few days in Appleton with Bob. I still don't think I made the best impression on Bob's parents, who are two of the nicest people I have ever met. I remember Bob's dad handing me a beer in the driveway after we arrived. 
The next day, Bob's mom invited us to come in and speak to her elementary school class about our trip, which they had been tracking on this map that they had hung up in their room. She had somehow attached a photo of us on our bikes to a popsicle stick, and she moved it westward along the map each day that she was updated on our whereabouts. I remember feeling like a superhero walking into that classroom. Bob and I dressed in our bike shorts and wore our helmets to give us some credibility. And then we gave a little presentation on how to practice bike safety. We also fielded some hilarious questions from students. One girl raised her hand and asked, were there any awkward silences? Bob and I just laughed at her. Another student asked, where was the strangest place you brushed your teeth? I had my answer prepared. Movie theater drinking fountain. Bob and I were pretty exhausted when we arrived in Appleton, and we were eager to relax. Somehow I convinced Bob that we needed to rent all five of the Fast and Furious movies from the video store and watch them all in quick succession. I know, right? There were still video stores in Appleton in 2013. We had just seen the sixth installment a few days before when we were staying with my friends Joe and Emma in New Buffalo, Michigan. But Bob didn't understand how The Rock could have been the adversary in the last film if he was working with Dom and Brian in the sixth one. He didn't understand the formula, that you have to be against the family before you can be part of the family. And he didn't share my hope that if Letty could come back, then maybe Han could too. But it's true that Bob probably wasn't aware of how anxious I was during our trip. On our first day, we rode 51 miles from Northampton, Massachusetts, to New Lebanon, just over the border in New York. It was a relatively brief day of riding, but riding in the Berkshires with all of our gear proved pretty exhausting. But I also had time to generate a more substantial journal entry during our first night. Here's what I wrote. Today is Bob's birthday, May 15th. Tomorrow marks the two-year anniversary of the death of my friend Bill Cranshaw. On May 16, 2011, Bill was struck by a car and killed while riding his bike through Arkansas during a cross-country bike trip that he had begun 45 days earlier in Irvine, California, three of his best friends from college, including my twin brother. Bill has been on my mind a great deal lately as this day has been approaching. I have been reluctant to tell people of my plan to bike part of the way across the country with my roommate, Bob, for precisely this reason, that I am deeply suspicious of what lies waiting for each of us in the road. I have yet to tell my family that I have already hit the road because I am afraid of what their reaction will be, though I have every intention of emailing them before the day is through and confessing everything. I anticipate nothing but objections from my father, reluctant support from my mother, and hilarious advice from my elder brother. From Sam, who is today in Santa Fe at a reunion with several of his friends from Bard who shared Bill's friendship and its loss, I can imagine a warm, be careful, as easily as I can imagine him advising me, defiantly, to turn around and go back. But I left this morning with a deep breath and an exhale that fostered the understanding that death lies waiting for me in the road, though I do not know upon which turn or upon which day it shall be my misfortune to meet him. I left this morning knowing that Bill did not do a damn thing wrong, that he died on a beautiful day under a willow tree in a ditch on the side of the road somewhere in Arkansas. 
There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will. Tonight, we are staying with someone called Eli in a place named New Lebanon, New York. We found Eli through warmshowers.org, a wonderful online biking network, which we shall be relying on heavily for the duration of our trip. Before unfolding the details of our journey today, which I am happy to say we have completed safely by mid-afternoon, I should like to attempt to compose a brief statement of purpose for why I am keeping such a detailed record of my travels with Bob, especially when my attempt to describe these events in my rude vernacular should perhaps prove meaningless to anyone who does not plan to take up a similar journey, following a similar route by a similar means of bicycling. And I should like to clarify that my purpose is multifold. Anna Claire, my beloved girlfriend, is perhaps the primary reason for my putting down here what might otherwise pass as all things must. Here I go on to explain how I plan to give my journal to Anna to make up for the many times I neglected to call her, either because of bad reception or because I simply didn't want to talk on the phone. Perhaps too, I continued, it is my intention to forge a closer relationship with my brother with this document. Sam does not write to me as often as he used to. There is no doubt in my mind that he departed on his cross-country bike trip, one person, and came back another. Just as there is no doubt in my mind that I left Northampton this morning, one person, but shall return another. The degree to which I alter shall be determined in the road. One of my favorite songs by my brother, the eponymous track on his album, Only Human, starts with a verse about two men out riding in a desert when they are met suddenly by death. Death was out riding his horse in the desert when he happened upon two traveling men. One of them saw his face in the distance and took off running the way they had come. When death made his way within range of the other, he tipped his hat and said, you know it's all right. He said, look, I'm only surprised to find him all the way out here when we have an appointment in town tonight. I'm not sure when Sam wrote this song. I only heard it for the first time a few years ago. But I feel like this verse captures the sentiment of what I was feeling out there in the road. It embodies the whole Oedipus met his fate on the path he took to avoid it speech that I give to my students every semester when I teach Western world literature. Every day that I woke up, I would ask myself, is this the day I'm going to eat it? Or is this the day I'm going to have to call Bob's parents? When I saw the map that Bob's mom had created for her elementary school students, I remember thinking, thank God she didn't have to tell these kids that one of us was dead. And I remember realizing then that not everybody was thinking about this trip in the same way that I was. I mean, how could they?
But perhaps most notable about this guy was his collection of empty hot sauce bottles. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was cool too that like a couple days after that we we ran into some guys who had actually stayed with him the night before. <laughs> yes. Because he, he mentioned something to us like, oh, I didn't get around to changing the sheets. I was hosting a couple bikers the other night. But that guy, Jeff really seemed like he, he, he like, took um, warm showers really seriously as, like, a, like he wanted to, like, guide people on their way, on their journeys his, or whatever. His directions into the city he met us at a particular place along the bike right, path he, and like right he biked with us for about 10 miles yeah yeah he was a phenomenal host in fact yeah. i will say this about all of the warm shower people that we stayed with they were all excellent i made this recording with bob on april 2nd 2020 while i was visiting my parents in bethlehem pennsylvania i was actually helping my dad out who had just broken his hip a few days before I figured a phone call was appropriate, since I couldn't be sure when I would actually get to see Bob in person next. Starting a podcast is a great way to kill time in quarantine during the coronavirus. I asked Bob a few questions about our trip, about his favorite days of riding, his favorite hosts. Bob and I keep referring to our hosts because we took advantage of a wonderful online tool in the biking community, something I had learned about from my brother on his trip, called Warm Showers. It's basically a version of Couchsurfing.com for cyclists who are touring. All of our Warm Showers hosts, Eli in New Lebanon, Jeff in Schenectady, Jenny and Olin in Syracuse, Cliff in Buffalo, Dave and Mary in Wakeman, Ohio, were active in the biking community. They had stories of their own to tell us about their tours and food to give us, perhaps in remembrance of when they had dismounted, hungry and tired, at the hovel of a stranger who offered them something similar. Even Jack, our host in Perrysburg, Ohio, who we never met, but who let us pitch a tent in his backyard anyway, was extremely hospitable in his absence. I don't remember anyone telling us a story as tragic as the one I carried with me of my brother's ill-fated trip, and I don't remember sharing it with anyone. But I remember being introduced, slowly, gradually, to a version of reality where a bike tour didn't have to end in ruin. Jeff was our host in Schenectady, New York, on our second night of the trip. Here's what I wrote about him. I should really give you a description of Jeff's bike before introducing the man himself. He has a GT with a fancy speedometer on it. The most striking feature of his bike is the action figure he has tied to the brake lines at the helm of his ship. He told me it is a character from the sci-fi show Galaxy Voyager? I can't remember what the show is called, actually whose epithet in the show is the best traveling companion in the universe. Right before we left the train station, Jeff found a Coke bottle cap on the ground with some sort of code written on the inside, which I guess can still be redeemed for points and prizes online. Anyway, Jeff picked it up and brushed it off. Sweet, he muttered, putting it into his pocket. Jeff is a civil engineer. I enjoyed listening to his narrative of the bikeway as we biked it. He is actually one of the bikeway patrollers, one of the people responsible for the bikeway, or at least the part that stretches through Schenectady. What a treat to hear all of the ins and outs of the bikeway's 10-mile stretch from the train station to Jeff's third-story apartment in downtown Schenectady. 
He pointed out spelling errors, the yield sign. He commented on every misplaced or pointless stop sign, the design flaws where you actually have to ride over the curb to cross the street because of a misplaced water grate. The ill-fashioned steep gravel hill with the sharp turns was the most helpful to learn about before experiencing. He also told us of where improvement was badly needed. He gave us the narrative of a crosswalk where someone was hit by a car and eventually killed a few years back because traffic speeds around a dangerous curve without warning of the impending bike crossing. They eventually took him off life support, he said. They definitely need some lights or something here. At one point, we came to a downed tree limb. Jeff stopped and pulled out his pocket knife. He used his miniature saw to trim the branches. Eventually, we pulled it down and off to the side of the path. Jeff has hosted about 16 people on warm showers this year, including a pair last night bound for Niagara. To him, Bob and I are masochists, or westward bound, riding into the headwind. To us, he is a godsend. Jeff's apartment is perhaps what one would expect from a civil engineer. But what does that even mean? Star Trek and Simpsons DVD box sets surround the living room. He offered Bob and me the futon, with sheets on it that had been used and not changed since the guests had stayed the night before. I think I will take a bed over a floor any time. He also has a shelf dedicated to nothing but empty jars of salsa and hot sauce. I am afraid to ask him about it, and perhaps prefer the mystery. I would like to think his answer might be, What, you don't have a shelf of empty salsa and hot sauce jars? <sighs> Pathetic. On the following day, I continued. Last night for dinner, Jeff took us to Bombers, a burrito bar down the street from his apartment. Before we left, he grabbed the hot sauce bottle from one of his shelves. This one had hot sauce in it. The secret to hot sauce, he told us, is that it ages. It ages well. Jeff doesn't open his hot sauces until a year after he buys them. After dinner, Jeff took us on a walking tour of the historic district of Schenectady. He carried the bottle of hot sauce with him the whole time. Jeff is extremely frustrated with a lot of the engineering of Schenectady. He pointed out several more design flaws to us. The superfluous traffic light facing the wrong way down a one-way street. The grate that fails to drain water properly on account of it is on top of a hill. The thing I appreciate most about Jeff was that he was able to show us the world through his eyes. A tour of historical Schenectady for him is more about why the city requires more signs or why a pedestrian walk button is no longer pushable. Although he did point some funny things out to us, like a plaque on the side of a building that read, on this spot in 1896, nothing happened. And the sandwich shop where Jeff gets a week's supply of meat by ordering a single sandwich. By the end of the tour, I became worried about whether or not Jeff was actually happy with his life as an engineer in Schenectady. But I quickly realized that biking is his way of dealing with his frustrations. It seems he bikes away from Schenectady as often as possible. When we got back to his apartment, which I learned was also an office building, Jeff waxed poetical about each of his four bicycles. He has a folding bike, an English antique that he takes very good care of, a road bike, and his efficient machine that he met us on. He told us of being Subaru'd by a woman pulling into a Stewart shop who cut him off and then stopped, throwing him off of his bike directly onto his helmet, which broke in just about every place it was supposed to. He showed it to us. 
He also showed us a train horn from an Amtrak train. At first, I thought it was some sort of art project. I thought it was what a devil's penis might look like. It was five-pronged and made of steel. Jeff loves Amtrak trains. We thought he was kidding when, after Bob and I had each showered and were ready to get a bite to eat, Jeff told us he wanted to wait until 7.35 so that he could hear the train go by. But he wasn't kidding. The train is music to his ears. He transitioned from showing us his bikes to showing us his trains without missing a beat. Bob and I let his monologue go on, too tired to interrupt or remind him of how late it was getting. The vanity plate on his sob says AMTK 207. And I was not surprised to see this morning that his email address, which he left at the end of a very thoughtful letter to us, which explained how to navigate the Canalway Trail through the cities we would be encountering today, included the alias Amtrak 207. I wonder if disgruntled passengers ever contact him with questions about their luggage by mistake. Nonetheless, I was reassured about Jeff's disposition in Schenectady when he assured both me and Bob that you have to do what makes you happy. As long as you do that, I don't have a problem. It was clear to me this morning that Jeff had shared with us a great deal of what brings him joy. He met us at one train station on the Erie Canal bikeway and brought us to another, the Amtrak station that is right across the street from his apartment. After discovering his letter to us in the morning, which he had stayed up long into the night typing out for us, I was confident that Jeff genuinely cares about the biking community and has a deep investment in the safety of his fellow cyclists. He took 16 warm showers travelers into his home this year because he knows they will be safe with him. His letter to us was very helpful and somewhat hilarious at some instances. He gave us a brief history lesson on a few sites we would be passing where historical tragedies had taken place, each one due to engineering design flaws. In his last paragraph, he warned us to watch out for both snakes and something called canaligators. Bob and I spent a good while this morning trying to figure out what such a creature might look like. I guess it might have been a turtle, or perhaps a highwayman. At one point, we passed an octopus-like design on the paved section of the trail, where the roots of a nearby tree buckled the pavement and merited some brightly colored caution paint. This could have been the animal he meant. Now, I am confident Jeff meant it as a metaphor, though I'm not sure what for. It has been almost seven years since Bob and I set out on our adventure. A lot has happened in that time. Bob got engaged and has plans to get married this summer. But I guess that depends on where things are with this coronavirus by then. I got married in November 2013, the same year we took that trip. My daughter Calliope was born in May of 2014, and Oscar came along in October of 2017. Bob and I both defended our dissertations, and somehow both managed to land faculty positions in Springfield, Massachusetts, though at different colleges. He's at Springfield College. I'm at AIC. Go Yellow Jackets. And perhaps it is because my faculty position invites me to teach Homer to the students in my Western World Literature course, but I can't help but think about my bike trip, and especially the part through New York, in a slightly different light now. For example, when one travels west through New York along the Erie Canal Trail on bicycle, 
one gets the impression that they are heading home from something epic. Or maybe that they are naive about just how far they will have to travel in order to make it home again. No, we didn't pass through Ithaca, New York. We blew past it, onto other shores and isles. Appleton was our destination. But it doesn't hurt to think of Bob, at the time, anyway, as an Odysseus without a Penelope. In a way, it might help to explain what we were doing out there. There were days, I'm sure of it, we were channeling Tennyson. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles, whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Or maybe that's all just a bag of wind. If I remember correctly, we yielded at every stop sign, bent with every raindrop. Still, it's fitting in a way that so many towns and cities in New York are named after places in ancient Greece. We actually passed through a town called Greece on our seventh day of the trip. After all, wasn't I sailing through some paved Aegean, eating the wind, inhaling the lotus in the breeze, deaf to the wailing of sirens urging us to stop, to turn back, to remember this trip could end in some monster's maw as easily as in the back of some ambulance? Wasn't I pushing onward with wax in my ears? After our second day, it wasn't even a lie to say that we had come from Troy. Troy, New York, of course. Where we had probably stopped to poop in a gas station. And so maybe it wasn't a lie either to say that we had left Troy burning and in ruins. We spent our third night of the trip in a place called Ilion, and the fourth in Syracuse. When I teach the Odyssey to students in my Western World Literature course, I like to focus on books 9 and 10, where Odysseus encounters the Cyclops, the Lotus Eaters, Aeolus, the Lestrigonians, and Circe. These are all tales of how he narrowly escaped his doom, used his cunning to outwit his enemies, saved his men from certain death, until too many of them died for him really to have been much of a savior at all. In a way, Odysseus reaffirms his Greek identity against the obstacles that would keep his men from returning to their homes. The drug of the lotus, the cannibal Lestrigonians. What is civil defines itself against what is barbaric. But I also like to use these encounters to teach my students about the ancient Greek concept of xenia, meaning guest friendship. It is the idea of being hospitable and being hospitable for its own sake. To the ancient Greeks, any human could potentially be a god, and you didn't really want to find this out the hard way. The relationship is built upon an exchange of gifts. It is the reason Odysseus brings wine with him into Polyphemus's myopic and swallowing cave, to present it to his host as a gift. In exchange for the wine, the Cyclops mocks this custom of offering a guest gift in return by simply promising to eat Odysseus last. Stepped into a cheap hotel, dipped a feather quill in the old inkwell, signed his name, William Tell, the owner asked, will you be staying long? I'm just passing through, just passing through, didn't come for no appointment, nor no rendezvous. 
I think warm showers is the modern form of Xenia. The only difference is, instead of repaying your host with a gift in return for the hospitality they have shown you, you are expected to simply be a good host to someone else in the future, to open your home to some weary traveler depending on the kindness of strangers. Yeah, I mean, it was like that with um, yeah. like the people that we stayed with and what were their names? Sue and Olin? No, Olin oh, yeah. and Jenny? Sue is the dog, I think. Yes. Yeah, Jenny and Olin. <laughs> yeah, that was in Syracuse, I think. They're just the people that are so nice. And you you yeah. really hit it off with these people and you never see them again. Right, but I I also distinctly remember many of the people we stayed with like had because they had they themselves had been on tours before. They, I got the sense they were like paying forward, like the hospitality they had received on warm showers, and they were like, "Okay, it's our, it's like our duty to like be nice to these people and like feed <laughs> them and make sure they get a good night's sleep because that's what we got when we were on our trip." Like the first night, the kid we stayed with, um, he like had done a trip, like out, he'd done a cross country trip, I think by himself yes. and he was like telling us about what it's like you know to bike through the rockies like which sounded crazy to me but then he also said that the berkshires were more intense than the rockies because they're like straight up and down whereas the rockies you're like it's a gentle slope yeah um, and i was like oh okay well the hardest day of riding is behind us then because <laughs> we just bike through western mass um but yeah sue um or uh yeah, I remember in Syracuse, Olin and and Jenny, if that if that's their names. <laughs> that um, confirmed on my Twitter account. Yeah, it was Olin. Yeah, I remember Jenny. we we really wanted to um we really wanted to eat at Dinosaur Barbecue, or I guess I did because I had eaten there before. So we went to Dinosaur Barbecue and then when we got out, um it was like getting dark and we were about to like go drive and find them, but then they offered to like come pick us up and they they like threw our bikes in their station wagon and like threw all our gear in there and drove us. I mean, it was probably like only five miles away or something. Like we probably could have done it, but like, I do appreciate that we didn't have to like f- try to find their house in the dark. Cause it was dark by the time we got there. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah. And then they were really, yeah, just really generous with their hospitality and everything. I mean, it was, that was great. Yeah, it was yeah, that a was a trip. good day. Yeah, yeah, we should do it again. Now you have to time. wait for your kids to. Now you have to wait for your kids to get a little older. Yeah, and then I'll send them to Cliff. <laughs> you can go do <laughs> teen treks or whatever. <laughs> Cliff was another one of our favorite hosts. Like, I think I, I definitely, of the strangers we stayed with, I, I think I liked Cliff the most when, when we got to Buffalo. Um, Cliff had the outdoor he, shower. Yeah, and he, he also, like, he, he he wanted to, like, hire us to, like, I guess he had this company. Um, do you remember that, where he, 
like he hired people to then take like younger kids out on like really long bike trips, like hundred mile, two hundred mile bike trips in the summer. Yes. I so it's basically like you're a no, camp was, counselor, but but yeah. on a bike. The name of the company was Teen Treks. Right. Right. And he right. he was like, oh, you guys could you could do this thing. You could get employed by me to take kids around on bikes. Right, which like sounds really cool, and I think if I if circumstances were different, I definitely would have been interested. But at the same time, another part of me was like, this seems crazy, because <laughs> it seems like so much responsibility. I mean, being a camp counselor is one thing where you're just kind of like responsible for kids, but but then when you're responsible for a group of kids all out on bikes, like on the highway, like traveling around places you don't know very well. Like, I, I can't... I, yeah, I don't know. Seems like a weird business model, that that thing. I mean, yeah. so you and I didn't have the most robust technology. We had uh-huh. maps. I, I rented a book from the library to follow the Erie Canal Trail. And then we right. were, like, using Google Maps step-by-step direction. Because we didn't right. have um, we didn't have a GPS or anything, so right. that felt like a full time gig just navigating. Can you imagine yeah. trying to do that on top of keeping track of all these kids and keeping them yeah. safe on the road? That would be so stressful. Yeah, sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, Cliff let us pitch a tent in his backyard, which was covered in dog shit, by the way. He also had an outdoor shower that we used, which was really nothing more than a hose with a shower head on it. My favorite thing about Cliff was the way he talked. Once we were showered, Cliff tried to point us in the direction of food. He was going to have dinner ready for us, but we had arrived later than expected, around 8 p.m. In his words, he gave up on us. We asked him where we might get some authentic buffalo wings. We figured we might as well do something historic in Buffalo, even if there was only about 15 minutes of daylight left. Cliff, who talks pretty fast and who drops his R's at the ends of words, said, Oh, Angoba, You want to go down to Angoba? Walk down Porta past the traffic circle and you get to Main Street. Angoba, you can't miss it. He convinced us to walk when he realized that we didn't have a U-lock. He seemed confident Buffalo would swallow our bikes if we tried to take them out which didn't make me feel any better about sleeping in a tent in his backyard. He walked us part of the way down Porter to his mother's house, pointing out the architecture of the music hall and some of the houses. He told us Buffalo is shrinking in size, and that it felt weird to be living in a city that is actually getting smaller. Cliff studied architecture. He has a master's from the University of Buffalo. He also has a son at SUNY Purchase, who was at the time doing a 700-mile tour down the coast of California. Bob and I ordered 20 authentic buffalo wings from the Anchor Bar at the corner of Porter and Maine. They were great, though I suppose they were nothing to write home about either. They tasted like buffalo wings. The menu has the whole story on it, which I didn't finish reading, and which essentially boils down to a woman in 1964 frying up some chicken instead of putting them in soup. When we were halfway through our meal, Cliff showed up and sat down with us. He ordered a Guinness and told us that he drove so that we wouldn't have to walk back. 
Cliff, I think I can safely say, was a lot like Jeff in the way he was very concerned for our safety and general well-being, which I sincerely appreciated. In the morning, we met Carol, Cliff's wife, who made us a huge breakfast of eggs and lots of toast, tea, coffee, and orange juice. The food was passed from the kitchen through the window on the porch where we dined. Bob and I were suspicious about why they wanted us to stay out of their house at all costs, but we were content with our arrangement. Cliff gave us a map of New York and encouraged us to think about working for him at Teen Trekkers this summer. He pointed us in the right direction and wished us well. He also promised he would write us a favorable recommendation on our warm showers accounts so that other hosts would be more inclined to welcome us. His words were, People should know you guys aren't a bunch of wife killers. Sails were set, but the wind wasn't blowing. It was the middle of June, and it was already snowing. Should have known something was wrong. Roll out of bed, put my shirt on backwards. I pulled my pants on first and my underwear afterwards. Slipped on the stairs, left a hole in the plaster right where your portrait belongs. We didn't encounter any cyclops on our trip. No one tried to imprison us, eat us, or turn us into pigs. But like Odysseus, I tried to be on guard about our hosts and other hazards, to watch out for potholes yawning like Charybdis. Nor do I think that my caution was unwarranted. After all, Bill had died in a place called Circe. And while the town was named after a prominent 19th century legislator, Richard Circe, who spells his name S-E-A-R-C-Y, as opposed to the bewitching queen of Aea, C-I-R-C-E, the homophone is enough to give me pause. Only one of Odysseus's crew dies on Circe's island, and his death is accidental. After a heavy night of drinking, Elpinor falls asleep on the roof of Circe's house, and when he wakes up, he accidentally stumbles to his doom. Feels like I can't do anything right I go to bed early, lay awake all night I'm afflicted by forces that I just can't fight Might as well throw in the towel But what a hell of a day I'm having If this is some kind of joke I ain't laughing I know worse things have been known to happen But they ain't been known to happen to me On the next episode of Someone Else's Blues, Bob and I finish recounting our journey, I finally get in touch with my brother, and he sends me all 491 pages of his bike journal. And Sam revisits the theme of twins in another song about two brothers. Next time on Someone Else's Blues. I guess then I wouldn't be here trying to choose now between mine and someone else's blues someone else's blues is a podcast written produced and edited by will stefan 
Music, of course, by Sam Steffen. By the way, if you like the music you have been hearing on this podcast, you can hear more at samsteffen.bandcamp.com. That's S-A-M-S-T-E-F-F-E-N dot B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P dot com. samsteffen.bandcamp.com. But you should have seen your face that day It looked not a thing like mine Why is it always common sense that says It's alright to just be yourself sometimes Lightning never strikes the same place twice, they say But even if it did, they might not believe that anyway If I were not me, and you were not you, that I would not want not to not be not you. The hardest part about loving you is that it has never been that hard.